Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast, the podcast all about the world of collect tech ah, collectibles, technology, and entrepreneur entrepreneurship. Every week, man, every week. Um, uh, I go by my name is Akil. I go by Rainy Day Collectibles Online, and with me, as always, is Chris, otherwise known as Little Prince Games. And indeed. Uh, yeah, this is a very special episode, uh, the continuation of our Community Spotlight series. We have a special guest on this week, uh, George, otherwise known as GTutor Online. How's it going? Hey, I'm good. And actually, uh, for what it's worth, I have not updated my Twitter. It wouldn't let me do it. Uh, I am. You can find me at GTutor on Twitter, but my store name, uh, otherwise going forward, is going to be Enlightened Tutor. My last name, T-U-D-O-R. So just to play on words, kind of clever, but... <laughs> Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on the cast. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Uh, very much so. Been looking forward to it. Uh, obviously, long-time listener, first-time caller type deal. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. George, I love having you on just because, well, for a lot of reasons, but predominantly, I just remember uh, getting started into it. I remember you asking me questions and then seeing, like, everything you've done in the past year, uh, I am now asking you questions all the time. So it's just fun to kind of see that that kind of go full circle. So uh, with that in mind, I think we'll just hop in and just go ahead and ask you with what brought you into the world of collectibles and, and beyond that specifically just the investing element of it. Yeah, sure. So uh, I actually started playing my first card game, as I'm sure many people's was, was I started playing Magic the Gathering back in 1996. Uh, and really until this past probably two or three years, that was the only card game I played and had any interest in. Um, I was born in 1982, so almost 40. And I, so, you know, for me, it was more, I started playing what at 13, about to turn 14 and uh, kind of, I'm sure, missed the boat a little bit uh, as far as the younger generation really getting into playing Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! I know we're kind of the other two big TCGs just after I started playing Magic. Um, I did start to learn P Pokemon, this is probably four or five years ago when my youngest daughter, she was about six, uh, we were going to try to play together at our LGS, we just never could really get the time or the right cards together to go play. Um, you know, obviously she gets exposed to it at school. I think all young kids from the time I graduated high school, I think if you didn't get exposed to Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh between either the TV show or the cards, um, as an anomaly here in the United States. Uh, but so I never really got into Yu-Gi-Oh, um, really, you know, just phased out of that too old. Uh, about two years ago, the only other card game I've played a ton to date actually was called, it's called Chrono Clash. It was by Bandai and uh, use a turn-based system. They used a lot of different uh, intellectual properties. Uh, they started with Naruto and that's me and my daughter played that together because uh, she used to be, she's a giant anime fan. I think she, maybe the world's biggest anime fan. So uh, learned how to play Chrono Clash, uh, played that for a little while. And then of course COVID hit and, uh, you know, kind of put an end to that. A uh, little fun fact for you guys. Um, for that Naruto Car Chrono Clash uh, TCG, there was one and only Pro Tour that was held in Orlando sometime. I think it might have been, what, 2019 now? Well, anyways, I, uh, I top-aided that. What? So maybe my one and only uh, top eight and the one and only top uh, Pro Tour of that tournament. But, uh, you know, currently most <laughs> of my time is tied up in I work a full-time job. I've got a wife and three beautiful daughters at home. Uh, so obviously they keep me busy. Uh, I go to the gym, you know, four to six days a week. And then obviously uh, kind of my new side hustle, I guess you would call it buying and selling collectibles. Uh, I am currently trying to learn how to play and get into the Digimon uh, TCG. So that'll probably be my next uh, hobby slash side project. But uh, that's kind of my overall 
introduction and uh, development with you know card games as a whole. That's awesome, man. Yeah, for sure. What quick quick uh, thing? That's awesome that you got a top eight. Yeah, that is sweet. Um, of that card game, is it is the scene or the community like? Are, is there like are this? Pardon me. Remind me what the game was called again that you had said oh, you had played. Sorry, it's Chrono Clash. Um, Chrono Clash. Okay. Yep. And yeah, there's a there's a strong local scene. I mean, there were I think primarily it seems like most of the players that played it were based in the northeastern United States. Um, so yes, they started with uh, Naruto as far as uh, intellectual property. I think what are the, some of the other ones they did? They did Godzilla cards before. Um, you know, some of the other card games had those. Um, in addition, I think the other two sets they had were Evangelion was one of the animes. And then I think the last one that they did so far, maybe the last one they ever do, um, just because it was kind of small to begin with, right? And it's hard for any uh, collectible card game to get off the ground, but they did a an expansion for My Hero Academia. So uh, super cool to me. Like I said, a lot of those were uh, shows that my daughter was interested in and really wish the game would have taken off. But unfortunately, uh, like a lot of other things, you know, and a lot of other businesses, uh, COVID really hit it hard. It was a really young and fledgling game. And if I had to guess, it, we'll see. Time will tell, right? But uh, with no organized play to support an already pretty small and brand new game, uh, probably the death knell for it. So hence my move over to uh, Digimon. It's got a similar uh, kind of playing style to uh, the Chrono Clash system. So I'm at least going to try it out and see if I like it. And if I do, then see if that's something else I can get my daughter maybe to do with me. Cool. <laughs> I love that. That's so awesome. <laughs> um, Chris, would you want to take, you can take the first question if you want. Yeah, sure. So I, I know you mentioned in the past, one of the main reasons why you got specifically into like the finance element of collectibles was because there was some like credit card debt that had been accrued. And I have to imagine you've got to be just well on your way to, to getting that paid off. So I'm just curious as, as things go forward, now that you've kind of established yourself in it, after that is kind of done in a way with are you going to keep on uh using this as your side hustle or, or are you going to try and kind of veer off and, and start saving that time i mean it sounds like you've got uh i more things to do than on i can count on my hand so how's that how does that look in your, in your future going forward here yeah i think for me personally i i don't foresee myself staying in it long term uh or at least not nearly as much as i am now once i've achieved all my financial goals related to paying off the debt but it really just all depends on what my inventory and my time commitment levels commitment levels look like uh you know with other things as i get to that point um i, I am getting fairly close to paying off that credit card debt which is great um and i would like to think that's hopefully kind of what differentiates me a little bit from some other people is that um, I've done a lot of things backwards, right? It's uh, had kids at a very young age, struggled financially mightily, you know, in my late 20s, I would say, and I'll be 40 next year. So you're really just trying to catch up, right? Uh, I made a lot of poor financial decisions between racking up a bunch of credit card debt, uh, racking up way too much student loan debt, way more than I needed to, um, just learned a lot of bad financial habits. So, uh, and unfortunately, you know, all of that stuff takes time to uh, be more self-disciplined, be more aware and really work on and, you know, try to pay those things off. So uh, for me, um, kind of the side hustle, if you will, or side business is, is a means to an end to uh, pay off debt, hopefully get some financial freedom and then tie both my money and my tie, time up to do, you know, lots of other things. I'm hoping more time with my kids. Uh, ultimately, you know, when they're grown, I'm looking into, you know, potentially becoming a, a consultant 
uh, or going into an exec executive role at a company. I've got my uh, MBA, my master's in general business. So the business in general, and especially in this field, obviously haven't been playing card games for over 20 years and now having that business background to go with it. Are, I'm very passionate about both and uh, really excited about obviously my own personal growth in the industry, as well as trying to help other people that are serious about it, uh, that really want to know, you know, hey, what am I doing compared to uh, where I want to be and me obviously trying to lead by example and then help other people along the way. Amazing, man. That's Amazing. awesome. I, uh, I feel like it doesn't get any better in collectible finance. And it, there's, it's such a great way to kind of just make a side hustle and, and really be successful at it. And I think your motivation uh, really, I think, has definitely put your head and shoulders above a lot of your, your competition to, to get it done. And it's just, uh, it's really fun to see your success, man. And I hope it keeps going. Yeah, I, I certainly appreciate it. It's, uh, I, I would hope anyone that gets into this realizes, I think they see, you know, from the vendor side and they think, oh, you know, they see all the, all these pieces of cardboard and P9 and dual lands like, oh, this is great. And, I don't think many people realize just how much hard work goes on in the background uh, when you're trying to change it from treating it like a hobby to treating it like a business. And if you really want to be successful in any business, uh, doing just that, uh, treating it like a business and not just, you know, something that you play with from time to time. So definitely been very challenging for me too. Uh, of course, removing the emotional elements of it and making sure that the decisions I make are purely from a business standpoint rather than, you know, whether I like the art or I like the playability of a card, uh, things like that. Trying to remove emotions and the human element, right, out of these um What's the word? I'm, I guess analytical decisions uh, when you're trying to run a business effectively uh, that you really do need to do as far as, uh, you know, not being so emotionally invested and thinking logically, because unfortunately, uh, we are very impulsive and illogical creatures. So uh, the more that you can remove that kind of behavior out of your decisions, uh, the more effective you're going to be. And uh, ultimately, hopefully, uh, the more, you know, you're, you'll be able to grow your business and uh, you know, move on to bigger and better things as time goes by. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to I want to dig into what you just said, but we're gonna we have a question in a second. We'll get into it. Um, I, I'm very excited to hear. Um, but what are your feelings regarding kind of celebrities or big content creators, YouTubers, even to the extent of Twitter personalities and stuff, um, effectively effectively becoming kind of hype engines uh, for different collectible communities and even like just like the influence that the modern day YouTuber has is something that like just didn't exist 10 years ago, right? You effectively have people who can hype up specific cards and, and create artificial demand um, for things that, I don't know, it's just, it's very interesting. Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's, I think they're great for different collectibles so long as you're already in the collectible or you can get in on the ground floor. Uh, the only issue I have with any of it, I think it's phenomenal. You know, guys like Jake Paul, uh, we're seeing, you know, Post Malone uh, with certain things. Obviously, we've seen everything with Cassius Marsh and some of these other uh, big name people that are bringing uh, spotlight from outside of the card game industry into it, right? That's, uh, I'm sure for as long as you guys can remember, I know me growing up, obviously, uh, card games were more, I don't know, taboo, right? And, oh, that's just a bunch of nerd stuff. And then... Uh, Fortunately, for better or worse, a lot of us quote unquote nerds are really showing people that, you know, by being able to use those analytical skills 
and you know the thought process involved in being successful at whether it was collecting or playing or you know treating them as a business now you know that that stuff is kind of cool right it's uh we've shown people that hey we, we've got the brains to uh make things work and we've come up with a lot of these uh phenomenal phenomenal technological advances so i think it's really neat seeing some of these uh you know very popular personalities bring attention into the collectibles market um my only i guess concern or uh i guess buyer beware type thing would be you know i'm sure you guys obviously in uh, several previous podcasts have talked about fomo uh which for people that may not be familiar for whatever reason is called the fear of missing out um and that's essentially just where someone says you know oh my god this product's phenomenal you know it's underpriced or whatever buy 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 right well when anybody does that for for better or worse and they may not be doing it intentionally but it is for ulterior motives right they may have a uh, significant position in whatever product they're trying to promote and uh you know they're trying to increase the value of their position so by telling people with their platform especially if they're very popular uh you know in other different facets of life you know singers actors whatever it may be well then it kind of creates this frenzy among uh either new collectors or current collectors saying oh well you know well so and so says it, it must be true and i've got to have it and unfortunately when people get caught up in fomo they end up you know overpaying for things like that and i think ultimately right it's the whole investor mentality is you want to try to get in as low as possible and sell as high as possible and you want to try to not get caught up in the hype um i think it was warren buffett may have said it it's you know you should be selling when people are buying and buying when people are selling so ultimately when fomo comes into play uh, i think it's really smart to sell if you've got any kind of position and somebody's hyping up anything you have you sell what you have you know if you can take whatever kind of profit margin that you're acceptable with making and leave someone else with the additional risk of trying to make whatever profit margin they're trying to make then at that point you know you've made your money and you can move it on to the uh the next thing so yeah i think the i guess uh popularity the uh people from outside of collectibles uh being invested and putting attention on it is great for everybody i would just caution people that aren't already invested in collectibles or are looking to uh just to make sure that you know you do your homework you're educated on what you're getting into and don't let fomo drive your decisions yeah i love that absolutely that sounds like a perfect summary for it yeah absolutely zakil i know you were uh you were excited for the next one you want to take it yeah yeah i i think um so i've just been i've been watched so you are in discords that we're all in and and i think we follow each other on twitter and stuff and i know that you've taken the jump um over the past kind of 18 months uh to formalize your business and and kind of change from the more collector side into sorting that out but um what has your growth been like over the past kind of year and a half and um how do you kind of navigate jumping between collectibles and you know f formalizing the business and you know getting going well yeah so it's obviously been just absolutely crazy um i never in my wildest dreams thought about owning my own business it's funny i kind of always said when i graduated with my master's in business you go okay well now i've got it got all the tools i at least have an idea of you know how you're supposed to run a business but i don't want to do that that's just so much work uh and then to give you an example i i wasn't doing much on 
TCG player sales wise the first two months of last year. Uh, between March and December of last year, I went from basically nothing, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars in sales to $60,000 in gross sales in the last 10 months of last year. And uh, my goal actually for this year is to anywhere, uh, ideally, I'd like to be somewhere between 120000 and 200000 in gross sales uh, this year. Um, so, you know, just lofty goals, uh, working hard and kind of being now on the business side. Uh, you know, finally, at the beginning of this year, I went ahead and reached out to a CPA to help me with taxes, uh, which they were phenomenal with. I, I cannot stress enough if you're going to even remotely take this seriously uh, as far as buying and selling any kind of collectibles and doing it for residual income on the side. Then, yeah, hire a CPA, um, look into creating, you know, an LLC or an S-Corp, uh, you know, one of those, depending on what your income level you think is going to be like on your uh, side business and definitely separate that income from any other personal income you have coming in just to make things uh, cleaner, easier. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say less hassle. It's definitely been uh, stressful trying to manage, right, a, a full-time career, uh, a family, um, everything else I want to do with, you know, now essentially a, another full-time business for all intents and purposes. Um, and the most challenging part for me has not only been creating, I guess, my own business, trying to learn what that means, what that looks like for me personally, but, uh, you know, just trying to figure out, it's just me doing it right now. It's literally only me uh, as far as, you know, sourcing the inventory, purchasing it, selling it, packing it, shipping it, you know, trying to get a brand out there. Um, the things I'm working on currently, I still don't have my own website yet. That's uh, in the very near future. Uh, I'm actually going to be attending. Uh, there is a TCG con in Tampa at the end of June. I think it's going to be one of the first large conventions, you know, since uh, the vaccines kind of came full blown into the United States uh, that is going to be happening. And uh, there's a very large vendor that has volunteered to kind of, I guess, use his platform and his experience to help some new vendors. So I'm actually going to go there and I'm going to vend uh, for the very first time. So really excited for the prospect, but also, uh, you know, a lot that's going into that on top of I'm actually going to be uh, starting a new position here at the end of May with a new company. So um, just a whirlwind. It, it's been great. Uh, I would recommend it to anybody that's willing to take that leap, but just know that there are risks involved and you really have to be all in and be serious about wanting to be successful and thinking about, you know, setting some short, medium and long term goals. And I think that's really important. Whatever you're going to do in life is setting goals, uh, understanding what realistic timelines look like, and then knowing the work that's going to have to go in to achieve those. So, yes, the past 12 to 18 months, obviously, have been uh, quite the whirlwind, phenomenal. And uh, going from, like I said, you know, just I wouldn't even call myself a backpack grinder. I didn't do nearly that amount of volume. I just had a large personal collection uh, of cards from playing for, what, 25 years now. But to go from that as just a hobby to, you know, I have probably 500,000 to a million cards in inventory uh, that I have to sort through and and everything. So I, I would say, you know, the scale of inventory I have is on par, if not more than a lot of LGSs out there. So, you know, having that and trying to manage everything else going on in my regular life with this new business venture has been uh, exciting, but very challenging for sure. Quick, quick question. Was there a I, moment? Oh, sorry. I'm cutting Chris off. <laughs> I have to get this in down. No, no. I'm just, I'm saying wow to all the things he's doing, not using. Okay. Um, quick. Was there a moment where you were doing it casually for fun that was like, 
the moment where you're like, oh, this is a real thing and I need to take this serious? Was it was it a, a dollar figure in sales? Was it like just, hey, I have to ship a hundred just today? Like what was the the one moment where you finally sat down and said, Hey, you know, this is this is something that's real? I I think for me, honestly, it's uh this hobbies in general have been a thorn in my side and really a, a point of contention in my personal relationships, you know, with my significant others, especially my wife who, you know, this coming week will have been married for nine years. Um, obviously, I've spent tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on pieces of cardboard. And really, up until the past, you know, two years, it's it's been a hobby. And for her, it's more, you know, we both worked really hard in our careers, are, are doing fairly well financially. But, you know, like, like I said earlier, I've made a bunch of poor financial decisions in the past. So for her, it's more, hey, you know, I want a new house. We've worked really hard that's kind of been my big why i think for a lot of people that's what should be important to you is determining why you want to do something you having that i guess inner fire and figuring out why something is important to you those you know i guess internal values of yours um there was no i guess light bulb moment for me i guess it was just more okay i'm almost three years removed from having getting my master's degree finishing that um, you know, for the past 10 years before that, I had been setting goals mainly related to uh, the school, you know, finishing first my uh, associate's degree and then my bachelor's degree and then my master's degree. And it's more, OK, so I'm getting to a point professionally, you know, where I want to be. But now wh what's out there? What's more? You know, what else do I have left to do? What I have left to work on? And the two big things for me were physically getting back into the gym and trying to get healthier and then uh, financially, you know, trying to get my own house in order, I guess, is the best way of putting it. Um, and I, I have a passion for this kind of stuff. I have a passion for learning. I have a passion for business. And I have a real passion and joy in uh, teaching others that, you know, want to learn. And, you know, I don't know. I Honestly, at some point in my life, I kind of hope to be a life coach uh, for people that are willing to listen. And for me, it's not I don't want to talk about all the great things I've done. I want to talk about all the mistakes I've made. Uh, because I feel like if you can have one person make one less mistake than you made along the way, and it makes their path easier, then you know, to me, it's all worth it. All the trial and error that I've been through will have been worth it. So um, that's really it for me. It's no big moment or anything. Just like I said, my wife has really wanted a, a new house. And of course, financially, I've had to work uh, to pay off debt where we could get to the point where I feel comfortable, you know, effectively quadrupling our mortgage. Uh, so um, <laughs> she's been a lot of hard work. And I think she sees too now with me putting in that work and, you know, the kind of income that's coming in and the things I'm doing that, okay, he's really making an effort. And she's a lot more on board now that she sees that it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just me saying uh, what I want to do. It's me, you know, not only uh, talking the talk, but finally walking the walk. Respect, man. Respect. I love that. It's, uh, it's how, that's how I got to justify taking up half of the house. The house, that sounds, uh, that sounds like an adventure. <laughs> sounds like you got a room right there, like all the stuff behind you dedicated to it, too. So, man, that's got to be fun. Uh, I don't think I think our definitions of fun are completely different. If uh, you imagine <laughs> a uh, an industrial shelf size full of uh, you know five rows of collectible cards as as fun, uh, I would say there are parts of it that are fun, but in general, it is uh, the the struggle to stay motivated and try to keep that stuff rolling along.
Well, along that note, uh, <laughs> as, as much as you you know you're willing to to let us in on, how many different collectibles are are you in on? So, I mean, you mentioned uh, you know. You're starting to get into Pokemon. You mentioned Digimon recently and Naruto. So how many different collectibles are you currently involved in? And, and how many do you think is kind of safe just in terms of like diversification? Too much, too little? And, and kind of what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so right now, just the three. Um, you know, Magic, of course, has been my primary hobby because I've played it so long. But the past, like I said, two to three years, I've really started to buy and sell more uh, Pokemon, and, and honestly, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I'm sure for everybody, uh, no pun intended, uh, talking about last year. But if I could go back to last year, I probably would have divested and liquidated a lot of the stock and other card games I have, and invested heavily into Pokemon. It just saw that much of a boom. It was phenomenal. I've got these small sealed boxes that I bought from Walmart. You know, not thinking much of it because a lot of the people I talked to at first when I was first learning it said, you know, hey, you buy it, you shove it in the closet and, you know, a shorter time frame than other card games, but you're going to get a good return on your investment. Well, I'm talking what there are boxes I bought in September of last year, little Victine EV, I think mythical collection boxes paid, what, $15 a piece from Walmart that I've been selling on TCG Player for $96 a piece. Uh, so there's some of the... Oh. Elite Trainer boxes, I think, that I bought, you know, for 60 to $80. And I looked both on TCG Player and, and Card Market just to kind of verify that the price I saw was real. And I can't remember which one it was. If it's Shining, no. Is it Shining Legends? Maybe it is Shining Legends, the one that's exploded. It's either Shining Legends or uh, Champion's Path. I don't think it's Champion's Path because I think that's the one that's been stagnant. But uh, Shining Legends ETBs, I think I bought at whatever, $60, $70 a piece. And I looked not too long ago, and I think they were somewhere between three and $400. And, of course, I'm just kicking myself and thinking why in the hell did i not just you know sell a bunch of the other stuff i have that's just kind of sitting on the shelf and put a lot more money into pokemon so um i guess the roundabout answer to your question mainly three you know like i said magic i've played for most of my life gotten into pokemon the past two or three years never really had the time or energy to get into uh Yu-Gi-Oh. um i've Got a few cards here and that I've, you know, randomly come across in collections uh, and trying to find them and the additions and everything has been challenging for me as someone that didn't grow up and play in the game. Um, I, I would say to the second part of your question, how many, I guess, is a good amount? Would you feel comfortable? I would honestly say no more than three. Um, two is probably the sweet spot, in my personal opinion, and that's just more... You, you only know what you know, right? And you only know or can know what you have the time and energy and financial resources to invest into something. So, you know, trying to learn anything from scratch is extremely challenging. Um, you know, as someone that's owned Pokemon cards here and there over the years, uh, I had no idea what the expansion symbols were. I had no idea the difference between, you know, Shadowless and Non-Shadowless for the... Uh, Watsi era Pokemon cards, I had no idea the difference, you know, at first between reverse and regular hollow. So I was totally clueless. So just having to learn all that and have a better idea of, you know, in a completely different game that I'm not familiar with, which items are, uh, I guess, more desirable um, compared to others. Of course, the card games that I'm used to playing, there's a lot more focus on playability and uh you know tournament level play whereas especially pokemon i feel like it's way way more on the collectability side right it's uh yes you're going to have tournament staples that are worth some amount of money but those aren't iconic uh and there's much more brand equity in pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh due to you know their tv shows really appealing to children uh than there are in most of these other card games absolutely um 
you, t- you mentioned TCG player. What are your favorite platforms for buying and selling? So for me personally, I primarily use TCG player. I, I just find for me, it's, it's easier, you know, being able to upload CSV files and, and, uh, you know, maintain and that's what I'm looking for. I want to bring for, uh, modify my inventory, uh, through spreadsheets is a lot easier than eBay. Personally, uh, I am looking into, like as I was starting on my own website, uh, there are some plugins where you can, you know, plug into multiple different marketplaces, including eBay. Uh, so looking into something like that, um, I would tell any business owner, especially anybody doing e-commerce, if you're not able or willing to sell your inventory in multiple different places, then in my opinion, you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, because the more eyes you get on your product, the more sales you're going to have and the more you can keep your money churning. So to me, that's really important. Um, I do sell on eBay from time to time, but not regularly. And just more between, you know, I'd say eBay, Facebook Marketplace, OfferUp, and Craigslist are kind of the other large-ish marketplaces, not including Amazon, right? Amazon, unless you have a brick-and-mortar store and or uh, you were grandfathered in, it's almost impossible to get on their platform, which I wish wasn't the case because obviously that's a phenomenal platform to be able to sell on. Uh, But for me personally, it's primarily TCG Player just because it's fairly easy to uh, utilize spreadsheets to maintain and uh, upload my and modify my inventory uh, versus the other marketplaces, which usually require you, you know, to take a lot of photos. There's not nearly as much seller protection on a lot of the other platforms, which obviously as a seller is very concerning to me. So my preferred platform for now is TCG player. And then I'll be excited to see uh, the upcoming uh, channel fireball marketplace that should be coming out. I think later this year is what I've heard. Uh, you know, now that I'm officially a business and can participate in that marketplace, uh, I think it'll be neat to see what kind of impact it has on the overall collectibles marketplace as a whole. Yeah, yeah, no, that's for sure. I'm excited for the the Fireball one too. I'm really curious to see how that one's gonna gonna play out in terms of the the new criteria for for who can actually sell on there. Um, but uh, something that I definitely know I learned from you in particular is selling cards that are in I'll call it less than mint condition. Uh, when did you realize? And I constantly, I always think I had a uh, I think it was a first edition base Lapras or yeah, it was like the hollow or whatever. And my dog got into it and chewed off the corner. And I remember thinking, oh no, I'm not going to get anything out of this. It was actually in like one of the very few collections I've ever bought. And I remember messaging you, I was like, my screen. And you're like, no, dude, just throw it on, throw it on TCG damage. And I mean, what's the lowest price on TCG? And there were like three copies. I sold it for like 30 bucks. And I was just like baffled that somebody would literally buy a card that it was chewed off and I posted it with a picture too. So it wasn't like <laughs> I snuck this in on them. Um, so I know you, uh, I mean, you talk all the time about moving like moderately played damage, heavily played cards. When did you kind of realize that like that kind of flow was, was there? Well, and so for what it's worth, I wouldn't say that I uh, capitalized on it or uh, I don't know, figured out the solution. I, I basically stumbled upon it. Right. Um, what I've discovered essentially since I started doing this, not quite full-time, but definitely, you know, much more man hours starting in March of last year when I effectively made it a business was that in, from my experience as a seller, there's really been two primary kinds of buyers in the marketplace. There are a set of buyers that are willing to pay a premium for mint condition cards uh, because that's what's important to them. Um, and, and, you know, they're willing to pay a higher price to make sure that the value of their card 
holds a premium. And then the other side is it's completely opposite. For me, I have actually a hard time moving moderately played cards because it's right in between near mint and heavily played or damaged. And those, it's more when you're middle of the road, right? It's uh, it's either one side of the fence or the other. And if you're in the middle, you're going to have a hard time, right? Um, conversely, I don't know how many times, Chris, I've ha had, say there's a card that's worth a dollar for a near mint copy on TCG player, and mine, it's damaged in some shape or form, right? It, so with damage there, you are taking a calculated risk. There could just be a little bent corner, but it's completely sleep playable, and that's still considered damaged, right? Or maybe it's got a sh big shuffle crease or a deep scratch in it. Uh, conversely, you know, there's cards with uh, water damage, which, by the way, as a seller on TCG player, I, I want to reach out to buyers and just... Caution you to be very careful, even with moderately played cards, because according to the TCG condition by, uh, guide, uh, apparently water damage on only up to 20% of a card qualifies it for moderately played. So oh you've got to be super careful. Yeah, it's, it's, that's insane to me. To me, it's more, uh, i not the biggest fan of their condition guide, and I say that only because... For me, damage qualifies as not sleep playable. So that could be, you know, warped beyond belief, ripped in half, uh, a literal freaking hole in the card, right? Something to where it's not going to be tournament legal versus anything else to me should be heavily played, whether that's a big crease, a big scratch, whatever. But, you know, it's very subjective. That's one thing I hope somehow in the industry you can get all the major marketplaces and vendors to agree on at some point in the future because that's one of the very difficult parts as a seller and as a buyer, right? Trying to agree on condition and those discrepancies. Um, but back to your point, it's so maybe there's a card listed for near man at a dollar, but I'll list a heavily played or damaged card uh, of the same card for 90 cents. And that's the cheapest copy. And someone would rather save a dime and buy my beat up copy rather than pay the extra 10 cents for the near man copy, which blows my mind every single time it happens. And it happens repeatedly. And for me, though, that's just thinking, okay, all this person cares about, they just want to play with the card. They don't care about what kind of shape it is. They are hoping it's in playable shape. But to me, that kind of defines the casual slash budget player that their main concern is just, okay, I'm just going to play with this card with friends. I don't care about taking this to tournaments. I don't care about trading this card. I don't care about the potential long-term value of this card at all. I literally just want the cheapest copy to have and play with. So it's been very interesting and fascinating for me as, on the seller side to see that uh, psychology of buyers where, like I said, you've got the one side that's very concerned about condition and that they will pay a premium for those better condition cards. And then you've got the complete opposite side where, like I said, those are the ones that blow my mind it's it's one thing if uh you know maybe a near mint copy is twenty dollars and a damaged copy is seven or something like that where there's a significant gap in price but when there's a near mint copy for a dollar and a damaged copy for 90 cents and they still buy the damaged copy for 90 cents I, I just scratch my head and i'm like i i also like to save money and keep costs down but at some point you gotta kind of you know reel it back and say okay maybe i'll splurge this extra <laughs> dime and uh, make sure that i'm getting the card in uh, pristine condition so uh the psychology is very interesting i don't know if your guys experiences are the same but uh that's literally the only way i uh am able to sell those cards i price them competitively but i, I try to price it to where I want to make sure I get people's eyes to it, but I don't want to price it too low and, you know, leave a ton of money on the table. And I think that's the challenge, too, um, is knowing, you know, how much you paid for a card, what your profit margin that you're looking to get out of is, kind of what you're comfortable making, and then pricing accordingly, right? Maybe I do price 
a, a heavily played or damaged card much lower than the lowest current copy. And that could be just because, okay, I know if it sells at this price, I'm, price, I'm going to make the profit margin that I desire. So I don't really care that it's, you know, 50, 60, 70% below the next lowest price because I know what I paid for it. So that's the other consideration to keep in mind. Quick question. As you were talking through the ending there, you uh, reminded me of something. How do you personally do bookkeeping? <laughs> so right now it's uh I don't know if it's a train wreck or if I'm a genius. Uh I think <laughs> I think I've shown Chris my uh spreadsheet before. It, it is very labor intensive, I, I will say that. Um so I keep everything in Excel for now. Uh future state, I think my wife uses QuickBooks at her uh what full-time career and I've talked to my CPA and they've you know given me the option to move there. So I think that's where I'm gonna end up moving all of my inventory and cost of goods sold and everything. But uh, for now, literally everything I do is in Excel. Um, I don't use Google Sheets only because um, I've got what sales data all the way back to 2018. Uh, and it's all in this one spreadsheet. Like I said, future state, I wanna get it to where essentially every year I'm kind of starting off at a clear slate. But uh, so when I buy a card, I uh, I actually wait for it to come in. I don't even, like when I buy it, I don't put it in immediately. When I put in uh, the date that I bought it, um, you know, what, how many copies, the condition, all that kind of stuff. Um, for me specifically as well, I keep track of uh, what formats the card is primarily played in um, for, you know, for constructed cards. Um, keep track of condition. Uh, obviously, the dates, I said. Um, so, yes, I put all that in when I buy it. And then when it sells... Um, I actually go ahead, I've, I've got a separate tab where I've got all of my fixed costs. Uh, and I would say anybody that's listening to this that wants to treat it like a business, see, treat it like a business. You need to keep track of all of your costs and you need to keep them as low as possible. Uh, because if you're not doing that, then you're not running your business as effectively as possible. And I don't know why this was so enlightening and just awe-inspiring for me, but the very last class of my MBA program, the capstone class, um, my professor made something really i guess clear and obvious to most people but really just struck with me you're not in business you know as terrible as it sounds for you know the these social uh programs that you know some of these companies do as far as donating to charities and things like that please don't get me wrong that is great i highly encourage it but let's be real if people would open their eyes and see it, that's a tax write-off right it, those are gifts that you know at the end of the year if you don't want to pay a bunch of taxes you just get to donate to a bunch of charities and try to break even uh, if you're doing business right that's what you want to do every year year after year you want your business to grow but show that you're breaking even you know what dollars and cents wise um but he said you know you're in business to make money at, at the end of the day that's what a business is for is to buy and sell goods or services to make a profit for you know either its owners or its shareholders uh, plain and simple uh so for me it that's kind of the most important thing is keeping track of all of my costs. Uh, I keep track of what, when it comes in, when it goes out, how much I made after all my costs are taken out. Uh, so yeah, month by month by format, I, I think Chris, you, like I said, I believe you've seen my uh, spreadsheet, very meticulous. And I try to be detailed because it's a couple things for me. Uh, one, it obviously helps me make sure that I'm making money. And when I see that there's stuff, that either I'm losing money or not making as much money on, well, then I can kind of move my position out of cards in that category or whatever and move them into other places. Uh, but two, it kind of gives me a future forecast of what I should be trying to do. Ultimately, the whole reason I keep track so meticulously is because 
I want to see what's performing the best from not only a dollars and cents standpoint, but also a percentage uh, profit margin standpoint. Those are both, I think, very important metrics. Uh, and sometimes people are concentrating more on one than the other. Obviously, the dollars and cents is the more important one. But if you're making lower margins, you really have to keep that in mind. And then two, for me, I, I want to keep track of the hold time. So if literally from the time I bought a card until I sold, how long was it in my possession? Uh, in a perfect world where I want to try to get to, and the reason I'm keeping track of all of this data is I want to be able to collect. I'm almost up to two years at the end of this year. I'll have 24 months worth of hard data. And I could say, okay, you know, based on two years worth of sales data, these are the types of cards I'm making the most money on. And these are the cards that I have to hold the least amount of time before they are out of my possession. Based on that information and what, 24 months worth of data, I probably need to be selling off positions and some of the other stuff that either I'm not making as much money on and or that I have to hold longer than I would like and start putting more money into the stuff that moves faster and makes me more money. And I don't know how many people think like that. I am more of a churn and burn type person. I'm a firm believer in make your margin and move on to the next thing. I know there are some people that are in better financial positions than I am that are able to, you know, hold product for long-term periods of time and get a uh, slow but consistent rate of return like you would say on bonds uh, if we're talking about the stock market. Uh, but for me personally, knowing the goals I have in mind and what I'm trying to do, I realize that I need to take my margins where I can um, and move on. I, I would say the other point too, Zakiel, um, kind of going back to the cost and people that want to treat this like a business that's important to me is realizing that it's okay to take a loss sometimes and get something out of your investment and move it into something else. I think people, yeah. uh, I was really, really bad about, I guess that's what the sunk cost fallacy, I think is what it's called. Yep. As you kind of realize, oh, well, you know, I've got all this money in this and I know I'm not going to get that much out. And, uh, you know, for me playing uh, poker for a, a little while, something that I, I've heard multiple professional you know really good players say that really i have to stick in my head every time i think that way something is better than nothing right and i think so many people are focused on well i'm going to lose whatever it is 60 70 80 percent I'm, I'm sure i've lost either all or most of my money you know on speculative purchases or uh stuff that you know wasn't in the condition described or, or whatever happened right but at the end of the day if i can get anything back out of an investment like that and try to put it into something else that either I think or know will be successful, well, then that's okay. It's You're going to have wins and losses. Uh, the whole reason you want to keep track of this stuff is to minimize your losses and maximize your wins. So I, I also wanted to say I think that's really important for people that are even thinking about treating it like a business to keep track of and think about is that even when you do lose money, you know, when you get to a point where you're just ready to move on or whatever. It's okay, I think, to move it, take your money and move on. If it ends up making money long term, great. And if it doesn't, like, that's okay too, as long as you realize that you don't have to feel like a prisoner to trying to make a certain amount of money on something uh, when there are other opportunities available. I love that. Yeah. So you're just dropping gems every. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> you mentioned like a dozen things there. We're like, holy cow. Um, Sorry, Chris, you, you can actually go. I've, I've been hogging the mic. <laughs> no, no worries. So I'm I'm curious because I know that you, you deal a lot in, in like the different psychological spectrum in terms of like low, like, I guess I would say poor conditions and higher conditions. Have you gotten into grading at all? And, and what are your thoughts on that? Because that feels like in terms of psychology, just going from, you know, uh, I think, you know, 
TCGs based off of play, uh, playability, I think definitely have that kind of, I just want it to play with, or I want the coolest of the cool kind of separation. But with a TCG like Pokemon, I have noticed, and I have honestly struggled keeping up and trying to figure out, do I just want to churn it and burn it? Because I think I have a much similar strategy to you, George, in terms of just, I want to move it as fast as I can. I don't care if it's 20, 30% margin. I just want to move it uh, versus, you know, taking that time sink, sending it in to get graded, getting it back. And I'm just curious what your thoughts on that are. Have you done it much? And, and if you have, are you ramping up in it? And, and just what's your position on that? Yeah, so... Unfortunately, I don't have a ton of experience in grading until, I guess, just the past six months. Uh, I say that. I'll see if I can put this up in the camera. My, I guess, new prized possession a couple years ago when I was just learning about Pokemon, um, there is a local guy that will go to storage unit auctions looking for sports cards collections. And when he stumbles across a gaming card collection, uh, now instead of going to some of the LGSs, he'll reach out to me personally. Uh, so he sold me a ton of... Uh, Really awesome magic collections, uh, some good Pokemon collections, as I'll show you in a second. Uh, long story short, I didn't know a ton about uh, Pokemon cards or grading or anything like that two years ago. I knew of sports card grading, right? That's kind of always been around as far as I can remember. And to me, that was always the big one. And I I'm sure still today between PSA and BGS and even now CGC, I'm sure is getting a ton of submissions of mostly sports cards because that market has absolutely exploded along with all the other collectibles. But uh, long story short, I, I bought a Pokemon collection, I think for $200. I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was like, okay, I hope this is good. I don't know, which sounds ridiculous. Please do not do that, okay? If you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what you're looking for, don't spend money on stuff. I cannot stress that enough. And I'm sure that should probably be obvious to most people, but I was trying to work out a long-term business relationship with this person. So for me, it's war. All right, I'll, I'll pay this amount, you know, look up what I can based on what very limited amount I know, and hopefully it works out. Uh, I actually got this, uh, what, Legendary Collection Shining Charizard in the collection. Literally, like I said, had no idea uh, about it, so I sent it off to CGC not too long ago. I don't know if people can see this. It'll probably show up backwards, but it came back as a 7.5 from CGC, and I think ultimately, based on what I've seen sales for go on eBay... Uh, that $200 collection that I bought that had that in, you know, a couple of years ago, that's going to end up netting me between somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000. So um, really wasn't aware of the grading premium until that particular card. Um, I bought a few collections recently that have had cards. I've got a friend with a not, lot more knowledge in the space than I have. And Chris and Zakiel, I'm sure you can attest to having connections to those folks that have this, uh, what's the word, I guess, intrinsic knowledge of, uh, you know, the hobby that you're looking to get into is invaluable. Um, being able to determine what's worth grading as far as what are you actually going to get a greater return investment on, uh, what price wise, value wise, uh, versus selling it raw. So I'm very new to grading. However, I am starting to get into it some. Um, and I would tell anybody, right, you've got to weigh the uh, risk and rewards uh, with both of those, right? With raw versus graded cards. And Zakiel, I'm sure you're all too familiar with this, doing all the grading that you've done in the past year, right? It's a couple of things. One, with grading, you're tying up a ton of your working capital for a, an extended period of time. Tell me and, about it. Yeah. And, <laughs> or otherwise, right? Unfortunately, if you're not tying up your working capital for a long period of time, you're paying an exorbitant amount to get your stuff back quickly to try to get it on the market and keep it moving. 
So you've got to weigh that with, okay, what kind of return on investment do I think I'm going to get if I get a good grade on this? And I, I can't stress enough, please, you guys, as more of the experts, I feel like I'm grading, correct me if I'm wrong, getting a good grade, and I'm talking good grade, minimum 8, 8.5 probably and up. You know, obviously on the older cards, any grade is probably going to be okay, and that could just be due to lower populations on those. Um, but in general, it's okay. Do I think this is going to get a good grade? If it does get a good grade, finding all of the uh, market information that you can on last sold prices for that stuff to figure out, okay, how long is it going to take to send in and get back? How much am I going to have to spend? Based off of that, what kind of return on investment do I think I'm going to get? on it if I grade it versus just selling it raw and knowing that if I sell it raw, I get to move my money, keep it moving, but I may be leaving money on the table, right? So um, very new to me, uh, strongly recommend for anyone listening to this podcast, go back and listen to some of the other ones uh, where Zakil and Chris have talked about it uh, and some of the other folks in the other collectible realms. Um, I, I think it's a really cool space to be in. Um, my concern is, and we'll get to, I think, probably at the end of this podcast, kind of my hot take, uh, that there is going to be a, a dramatic effect when all of these cards uh, that are currently being graded come back out. So I hope that answers your question in a roundabout way. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, when you talk, when, what are your thoughts on maintenance, conditioning, and the preservation of cards for both your personal collection and uh, active business inventory. Do you have high-end stuff saved away in a vault? Is everything on? I mean, feel free to share as much or as little as you want <laughs> for yeah, security no. stuff. But uh, you know, how do you how do you kind of deal that? Uh, so I am probably a terrible example of this. Honestly, I put all my stuff in boxes. I'm you know four and five row boxes. My uh, active inventory that I'm actively selling is in like two row boxes. Like more expensive cards and or, you know, foils I'll put in soft sleeves to try to keep them protected better and preserve their condition. Uh, but in general, it's more, I don't know, uh, keep them in boxes. Obviously, you try to keep uh, moisture away from them. Uh, I will tell you a not so funny story for me in just a second, but hopefully you guys will get a good chuckle out of it. But to me, it's more, uh, it depends on what your... I guess valuation is right of your personal collection or whether it's a business, however you're going to value your collection and, and the time standpoint, right? So I would stress to anybody, if you want to treat this like a business and you want to buy and sell cards, you're going to don't keep them in binders. Um, there's a few reasons for that. One, they're just harder to access. Um, you know, unless you're a master at label and stuff and knowing exactly where everything is for me, it's just personally, I put it in a box. I put, you know, everything in set in alphabetical order. That way it's very easy for me to find, especially when I'm doing larger orders of, you know, either hundreds or thousands of cards. It's much easier for me to dig through boxes that have labels and everything's alphabetically sorted than to try to dig through multiple binders trying to find cards. Um, I don't do much trading anymore. I don't think that's a viable uh, thing to do unless if you're wanting to trade for things you need one for one, then that's probably fine. I know for me, I've got a lot of local people that, you know, know that I'm the guy if they want to buy or trade cards from, but I make it very clear. Um, and I'm not trying to be mean going back. This is another business practice of mine personally, take it if you want to or not. Right. But, um, if I'm trading and it's not a card that I need or want for my personal collection, I'm not going to make a trade unless it's going to be financially beneficial for me. And I say that not, I'm not to be clear, not in the business of sharking people. I, I'm very 
vehemently against that. And I think that's what gave trading in general a bad name, you know, between the late 80s or late 80s, good Lord, late 90s <laughs> into the 2000s. Um, but I would tell anybody, you have to value your time properly. Um, and that's something I personally am really bad at. I'm trying to get better at. Time is the one resource in this universe that when you use it, it it's gone. So for trading for me specifically, it, it's if it's not something I need, then it is a use of my time. And I'm very straight up with people. I'm like, hey, I don't mind giving you, you know, whether it's this really expensive card for a lot of your bulk or maybe it's not an expensive card. Maybe it's, you know, I'd say a $20 card for other cards I don't need. But it, I, I make it clear it's more, you know, and this is no offense to the person I'm trading with. If, if I don't need your cards, I don't need your cards. Like, I don't mind giving you what you're looking for. But in return, because I'm getting stuff that I don't need and it's going to take me more time and effort to sell then I want to make it worth my time. So I would stress to people, if you're, you know, looking at that, do something like that. Um, but no, Zekiel, I'm bad about, I shove it in a box. I make sure it's secure. <laughs> um, I, I, my bad story, this was probably four years ago. I had, a, am sure, a couple of thousand dollars worth of bulk, uh, like good playable cards in a large five-row box and uh, had them just shoved in the back of my trunk. Uh, thank goodness this wasn't theft, but this might be worse. Uh, living here in Florida in the middle of uh, summer, we get thunderstorms Oof. almost every day. Oh. Uh, something happened where I went to sleep and I must have accidentally, uh, I don't know, laid on the unlock button for my trunk and a thunderstorm rolled through. And I woke up in the next morning, morning, saw it was a little loose and opened up. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm talking like I said, easily and somewhere between one and three thousand dollars minimum of oh. good playable stuff was all completely and utterly water damaged. So. Man. Yeah, put, putting stuff in a safe spot, especially to your point, uh, God, anything, I'd say mid one figures, I'm talking, you know, four or $500 and up. If you're not going to be actively playing with it and you don't have a spot where you think you can keep it safe from water and or fire, yeah, either get a fireproof safes are pretty cheap for small ones. Um, I haven't looked into safe deposit boxes yet because I don't have anything of that kind of value personally. But if I got to the point where I owned, you know, what my personal collection in a few cards, just like your one Zekiel was worth, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, then yes, I'd be like, all right, I don't want to see this thing unless I absolutely need it. Let me put it to where, you know, God forbid, if the apocalypse happens, this thing is going to remain intact. So, yeah. That's uh, as I also too, just hearkening back to when you're, you're talking about trading, uh, I'm curious how, how did, and, and this might be way too big of a tangent. So let me know if it is, but, how did uh, tracking the cost of goods go on your spreadsheet when you trade a card go? Oh. That, when I did that, that was a nightmare. It, it is. And effectively, the way I do it is uh, I try to – so if I trade a card, I am treating it as I sold it, quote-unquote, right, for the cost I paid for it. It's a zero sum at that point. And then I try to comparatively say, here are the cards I traded for. That's my effective cost of the cards that I acquired. So – Say, for example, Chris, your point, maybe I get a 20% bump, right, compared to TCG low. Well, then, okay, the cards that I traded away, I, I made $0.00. And zero cents. I, that was a break-even. However, the inventory I acquired, I acquired at 20% below whatever the market rate was. So I try to compare dollars and cents-wise, what did I give away? Dollars and cents-wise, what did I get? And then, like I said, obviously take the, what I gave away divided by the value of what I acquired. and then do that card by card hopefully for me it's typically not more than i don't know 10 to 20 cards if you're i don't know trading a big card for a bunch of bulk 
it's probably too much of a process, but in general, it's just trying to figure out what you traded away at a, at a break-even value versus what you traded for at that total amount. And then, you know, if it's one card, it's real simple, right? If it's multiple cards, then you say, this is the percentage that I paid, quote unquote, for these cards. And then you, uh, you know, allocate it accordingly. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's, uh, the joys of bookkeeping. <laughs> Quick note about your trade uh, comment. I think most people are willing to give an extra premium. Like if you have something that I want, it's like, yeah, dude, I don't care. Just like, like let's let's work something out. And um. It, it's kind of counterintuitive and, and to your point of kind of bringing up the sharking when you talk to people who aren't as knowledgeable and like the money side of things, it can be a slight awkward conversation. But for anyone who is like an actual enfranchised collector or player that like, they just like know how it goes, it's I, I've never, ever had an issue and stuff like that. Um, but for like general, it, it is a it is a it is like a for people who may not be as in tune it is a, a slight kind of pause moment but i've never had an issue with it personally yeah and for what it's worth to kind of piggyback on that i think the only issue you run into um and no offense to anybody that does this we understand everybody wants to maximize the value of what they have versus what they're trying to get it's we 110 percent get it right because i'm sure we've all been on both sides of that coin but when you're like i don't know if it's a 500 dollars trade and you're 30 cents apart Come on, man. Like, let it go. I, I know that thirty, those three dimes are going to really end up mattering, oh. you know, long term. They're not. But that's those are the ones that bother me the most. So, yes, from me, the uh, speaker to the listener, please, if you're doing a large trade and you're within, I don't know, I'd say one to five dollars for me personally, it's you're not giving up that much. You're not getting that much. At the end of the day, it'll end up even now. So just just let it be. It's a, you, you don't have to find three bulk rares to uh, make it even out. I, pr I promise. I promise it'll be OK. So. Nothing, nothing blows my my wig back more than when somebody walks away from like a three hundred dollar deal because there was a two two dollar and ninety nine cent shipping charge attached to it, and it's just <laughs> ah drives me. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's the intrinsic value that you know some people have on money, right? It's uh, you know I didn't really tell you guys my life story, but. I grew up dirt floor poor. I was bullied a lot as a kid. I've had to work my ass off, excuse my language, edit that out if you need to, Zakiel. But, you know, money, unfortunately, has a lot more personal value to me than it may a lot of other people. So I definitely see that, Chris. It's, you know, when you've worked hard to accumulate whatever little or whatever lot that you have, it's uh, it's really hard sometimes to give up that whatever two, three, five, ten dollars $10, even in larger deals. And I would just tell people, that goes back right to the t value of time versus money. Um, valuing your time, I think, is far more important, uh, but it takes, I'd say, most people a long time and a lot of wisdom and a lot of uh, hard lessons to realize that, you know, hopefully you've got your entire life to make money. Uh, you, you, whatever time you have is whatever time you have, so use it wisely and uh, what, don't sweat the small stuff, I guess is the... The big saying so when it comes to little things like that kind of let it go and ultimately with things like that whether you know you're buying and selling or trading being willing to give and take a little it ultimately leads to good business relationships leads to repeat business relationships and that's what's helped me a lot is i've been able to work deals with people where you know maybe i bought a collection of cards or whatever that wasn't necessarily a price that i was happy with as far as what my margin were going to be but this is someone i've done business with you know time and time and time again 
So I know that, okay, I've got to take a hit one time, but the other nine out of 10 times, they're going to do me a favor because they know what I do. They know why I'm doing it. And I'm very upfront. So I, I would stress that to anybody. It's more, if you value repeat business with people, uh, whether, like I said, that's buying, trading or selling or just life in general and relationships, you have to have a little bit of give and take. And you have to realize that, you know, you're not going to lose in the end over $3 one way or the other on a large deal and you're not going to win either. So it's better just to, you know, let it go. And, you know, if it's that big a deal, honestly, if it's someone that you're doing repeat business with, I, I promise they'll remember, oh, well, they gave me five or $10 in extra value. I'll make sure that I make up for that next time. Uh, like Zakiel said, most people seem to be reasonable human beings when it comes to this stuff. So just realizing that, giving people the benefit of the doubt, and then realizing that, you know, your long-term value uh, as someone, if especially once again, if you're going to try to treat this like a business, is in those repeat relationships, having other people refer their friends and family to you because you're the go-to person, you treat them right, and you do business the right way is far more valuable than, you know, getting that $3 extra on a trade to make sure that, you know, it's even, so. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry for the tangent. No, it, no? it was amazing. <laughs> uh, would you like to go, Chris? Sure. So I think I think we kind of addressed, you know, the the collectibles uh, of interest at present. Uh, is there anything uh, you mentioned earlier on? You know, Digimon is, is something you're you're getting into gameplay wise. Uh, but you know, I think you mentioned too. You you kind of want to stick to two. So uh, is Digimon something that you're kind of looking to get into financially, or just enjoying the game and then just trying to have something left that you can still have fun with and not worry about the numbers attached to it. Yeah, definitely the latter. Uh, more looking for another hobby. <laughs> you know, when you're converting your main hobby for 25 years into a business, uh, to me, it took a large emotional toll. You know, that's a game that me and my best friend played when we were kids that he introduced me to. So uh, moving that over and seeing cards that I thought I would never let go of in my life go out the door. You know, it's a relief, obviously, realizing that slowly but surely I'm able to let go of that emotional attachment to a piece of cardboard. But, you know, conversely, it's I do enjoy playing in tournaments. Uh, Chris, I think I've told you before, Zekiel, I don't know if you've heard me. Um, back at the end of Magic, when they had ELO ratings, um, I guess my accomplishments, I top 32 a couple of limited Grand Prix. Um, when they had ratings, actually, uh, my limited rating, when they got rid of them, I believe was 2040. Uh, I was t a top five player in the state of Florida. I was top 100 limited player in the world. So pretty good player. Took a long time to get there. Um, but I really do enjoy the competitive aspect, kind of the mind games, um, trying to outplay your opponent uh, in these card games. So uh, for me, yeah, just having that, I guess, creative slash competitive outlet and being able to just, you know, at this point in my life, realizing that I don't financially, right, I'm not trying to become a pro in any card game. So it's just for fun. I do want to win if I'm playing a competitive event. That's why I'm going there. I want to build a competitive deck and I want to play to win. But, you know, for me, it's just the interaction, you know, with another person, the the thought process, you know, all the things that go into making card games fun and enjoyable. Um, same reason why I hope at some point, uh, you know, to be able to play some of these card games more casually and literally just go out on a Friday or Saturday night, hang out with friends, you know, at an LGS or at a kitchen table and have a few beers and tell stories and laugh, right? And just enjoy the company and less so worry about, you know, trying to win or lose. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people, especially I would say it seems like in worse financial situations, or at least speaking from experience, that was me, get really caught up in the winning and losing and, you know, let that frustration and I guess the tilt build up in that when 
literally you're paying playing for I don't know tens, maybe sometimes hundreds of dollars in store credit, not cash, right? It's not going to make or break, uh, or it shouldn't your day to day uh, life expenses. But some people just get far too, uh, I guess, involved in that. So the other thing I would tell people is, you know. If you're going to treat it like a business, treat it like a business, remove the emotional attachment. And if you're going to treat it like a hobby, just do that, right? Have fun. It's called a collectible, whether it's a collectible that you're collecting to just have and enjoy and, uh, you know, realize the whatever value it is to you, whether it's financial or just, you know, the intrinsic value memories may, you know, maybe you had with your parents or other friends or loved ones. Uh, or just something you're doing to have fun to let off some steam and realize that, you know, at the end of the day, this stuff, honestly, it's if you're not investing in it to treat it like a business, then treat it as a sunk cost. Like I spent money in it and it's entertainment, right? That is that's your entertainment cost of whatever you're willing to spend and what you're buying. It's so you have some form of entertainment. So you get to let loose and have fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. Amazing. Uh, you brought up you said tilt. And it just reminded me, uh, I play Dota for fun. And sometimes I feel like it's my second job. I'm like, why am I, I'm just mad at, I'm yelling at my teammates. I'm just mad at the world. I ruined my Saturday because I'm just playing games, spend an hour of my life. And I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to have fun. Why am I upset? Like, everything is good. I should just enjoy the game. Glitch all for life, buddy. (laughs) Just, oh, anyway. (laughs) The Dota life is is, uh, something else. But anyway. Going. <laughs> Sorry. No. I can tell you it doesn't get easier if you play League. <laughs> um, but, uh, anywho, uh, so just kind of moving on to like the final segment here. You know, where do you see the future of the hobby going in, in the next five years? You know, technologically, financially, playability, whatever it might be. Sure. So I feel like currently there is a massive opportunity from a technology and a reporting and analytics standpoint across all hobbies. Um, and I, I think, Chris, it's, it, I, to me, that's what fascinates me the most about you is that really you've identified in a lot of these hobbies that you see that um, gap that they have as far as nobody's keeping track of data. You know, all these other massive successful companies with all of the data that we have available to us at this point in time are trying to utilize that, right, from marketing standpoint, um, you know, targeted marketing, things like that, right, trying to figure out, okay, Who's spending money on my product? Where are they? You know, what's their age group? What's the demographics, right? And how can I better cater my product to these people that are spending the most money on my stuff? So I feel like anybody, especially in the collectibles industry, where there is, you know, billions and billions of dollars being spent, especially over the past, you know, 12 to 18 months, would be well served to try to gather some of that information and say, okay, you know, where are my customers? You know, who's spending the most money? Where are they located? You know, what are the demographics? Um, I feel like, you know, five years ago, I used to see, I don't was it SurveyMonkey is the big survey company. And you used to see those all over the freaking place. And it was, try, it was trying to get that kind of information, right? Like from customers, what do you like? What do you not like? Uh, you know, what makes you want to buy our product over, say, a competitor's? Um, so I think anybody that knows how to code and knows what they're looking for from a data and an analysis standpoint, has a significant competitive advantage over other people that don't uh, in the space, including myself. Unfortunately, I just haven't had the time or bandwidth to start learning coding and uh, being able to make tools to, I cannot stress, I'm a big proponent of work smart, not hard. 
you've got to work hard so you can work smart. But if you do all that work on the back end, it makes your life so much easier going forward. And especially if you set something up that, you know, you're going to utilize long term. Um, I do think, you know, we're going to see a pullback in prices uh, as the demand uh, from COVID kind of everybody being stuck in the house uh, winds down over the next six to 12 months. And uh, in addition to the, you know, influx of graded cards that we're going to see coming back from all of the grading companies. Um, uh, I do think from a collectible and playability standpoint, these brands that have that brand equity that they've built up over time are going to withstand uh, any kind of issues, you know, over the next five years. And, uh, you know, I, I do think, I, I wonder what kind of impact that COVID has had on a lot of these, especially from a playability standpoint, right? You went from these massive tournaments where, you know, you had tournament organizers spending tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, on these, uh, you know, event halls and vendors and everything else and trying to attract players from all around the world to come in and spend money. Well, now the past 18 months, you've had to completely convert that to, okay, we can't play in person. So we've got to, it's really forced a lot of them to innovate, right? From a technological standpoint, you know, between, I think spell table is one of the things I've heard of where you can actually get on camera and play with your friends, you know, with play mats and things like that. And of course, move into a lot of these other digital platforms. And I do wonder what kind of impact that's going to have as far as, you know, I, I, I've got to believe, I know Pokemon obviously has had a surge in its bottom line. Um, I, I, you know, I, if I had to guess Konami, I think they're the creators of Yu-Gi-Oh! Is that correct, Ezekiel? Yeah, so I, I'm guessing they've also had an increase to their bottom line. Bandai may have as well. I, I wonder with a lot of these companies, right, seeing that, okay, we haven't had to do a ton of marketing. We haven't had to you know, spend hundreds or thousands or millions of dollars, you know, on these big in-person events. And yet, you know, our, whatever, whether it's their stock price or the, the company's uh, valuation as a whole, whatever it may be, I don't think has really changed. In fact, I would have to believe that a lot of them have probably increased. So for those companies, it's going to be trying to figure out that, okay, well, we haven't had these in-person stuff events with these eyes on our products that we thought we had to have, and yet, you know, people are still buying our stuff. So then they're going to have to really, I think, take a hard look at, do we think we really need to do that in order to, you know, continue to build our brand and for it to grow in the future, or are they going to move to some other digital initiatives? And I, I think that'll be the interesting thing to see. Like I said, is uh, if somebody can come out with some uh, reporting capabilities that really don't exist currently, and I think are sorely missing in a lot of these marketplaces, and then from a collectible and a playability standpoint, uh, trying to determine the impact that COVID has had and whether that's, you know, the short-term impact of COVID and not being able to play in person, or whether that's a long-term opportunity where they can convert resources from a lot of these large in-person events to digital, uh, I guess, comparables, replacements. Uh, mm -hmm. It'd be really interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what role do you foresee collectibles playing in your life in 10 years, if any? Uh, so I'll probably still be playing Magic because I've been playing since 1996. Uh, but in a reduced role, I think, because career-wise, I'd like to go either down the consultant or executive path, like I think I said earlier. Um, and really, at that point, my youngest daughter will be 21. So, Lord willing, she'll be, you know, growing out of the house in college, doing something else cool, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, beyond that, I'm just, I'm not sure. Um, 
collectibles have been, like I said, a part of my life since I was, what, 13 years old. So it's, you know, I don't know how many times I've, you know, sold my collection or rebought in or whatever. And this is the first time I'm trying to treat it as a business. So seeing it from, you know, less so the buyer slash hobbyist standpoint to the uh, vendor, uh, you know, standpoint is definitely interesting. And I don't know what kind of impact that's going to have, you know, in five or 10 years as far as what where I'm at and where I want to be in the space. Um, you know, really too, the other thing, what I'll be approaching 50 years old. Like I said, I, I'm sorry. I'm an old man for all of you out there listening. There's some dinosaurs out here that, uh, you know, still play and collect and things like that. Um, so I'm hoping at that point, like I said, we kind of did things opposite, right? And me and my wife had our kids very young. We struggled massively financially in our younger twenties, but I'm hoping by that time, my wife will be in a, what her mid forties. I'll just be going on fifty. It's we'll have hopefully our whole lives ahead of us, right? To finally go out and travel, explore the world, you know, explore whatever opportunities we have, and just kind of see what else life has to offer. And I, I think a lot's going to depend on I don't know, you know, the state of the world, um, what other pandemics happen, if any. Hopefully none, because this past eighteen months has been challenging for all of us. And really, just kind of how successful or unsuccessful I am in my endeavors you know both professionally as well as uh you know in the collectible space with uh trying to make that residual income and uh use it to get to where i want to be financially and catch up from where i was um with that last point i want to add it's i i can't stress enough i guess what well one it's what i'm not a financial advisor right the whole preface so just take this for a grain of salt but if you are in your, you know, upper teens, younger to mid twenties, I'd say even early thirties, and you just haven't started saving, like start treating stuff seriously. And really, the, the earlier you do it, the more you set money back, and you just don't touch it and you leave it alone, um, the better. That you know, the compound interest is a real thing, and it takes time to develop. Uh, that's why I'm going to have to catch up. I'm in my late thirties and have almost no savings. Uh, versus if I hadn't touched my savings and my, you know. Uh, upper teens and 20s and then my 30s i'd have an okay nest egg and be well on my way to being able to retire at, you know 60 65 uh, as it is i cashed out my 401ks i spent money on a bunch of dumb stuff i didn't need and because of that i'm really gonna have to play catch up over the next 10 years so i would say 10 years from now a lot of the impact of the uh, collectibles world and my uh, involvement or non-involvement in it are going to be very dependent on how successful i am uh, financially with my goals, uh, with what I'm trying to do now. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. If it makes you feel any better, I just left a role where one of my coworkers title was uh financial analyst and he didn't realize that by not matching, he was leaving money on the table. So, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, there's a lot of special things out there that, uh, a lot of people, I, I don't know how you get that far, but, uh, it happens. Uh, but anyways, you mentioned this earlier. You were hinting at it. You know, what is what is your hot take about the future of collectibles? So I think that collectibles over the next 12 months are going to be in a really interesting and challenging spot as people get back to going outdoors and, you know, doing other activities. Uh, right. Because the whole the last 12 to 18 months. Right. You, you know, you couldn't go on vacation. You couldn't travel anywhere. Right. Uh, movie theaters, bars, all kinds of other social activities were completely shut down. And that's why we saw this boom, right? People had all of this extra money that they either budgeted or didn't budget, whatever the case is, for entertainment purposes. Now sitting around doing nothing, like, oh, well, what the hell, right? I'll go out and 
buy some sports cards, you know, buy some gaming cards, whatever the, buy some toys, whatever the case is, right? Whether that was to, uh, reel back in memories from their childhood or realizing that, okay, I've got this extra money that I'm not doing anything with now. You know, I could either put it in a savings account at the bank and earn whatever, one tenth of 1% in interest, or I could just go invest it in whatever, crypto, Dogecoin, like whatever the hell it is, right? So, I think without a corresponding increase in these larger events like conventions and other big tournaments to support in-person participation, I think we could see a significant decrease in overall prices and value of tangible collectibles, obviously, and by tangible stuff you could hold, right? Collectible cards, toys, stuff like that. Um, as far as NFTs and some of these other digital, digital collectibles, I don't know what kind of impact, you know, it's going to have on those as, as they're still new and fledgling technologies. Uh, maybe that's what a NFT should stand for, right? I just uh, made that one up. <laughs> um, but I, I do think, you know, we could see a significant decrease in price, um, whether it's, you know, people are selling the stuff, right? Anybody that's made money, if they're smart, in my opinion, should be cashing out in some way, shape or form, right? Even if you just want to get to a break-even level of the amount that you invested, Um there's lots of other people, though, that are going to be wanting to, you know, go on that vacation or the cruise that they didn't get to go on for the past two years, right? Now they've got all this money tied up in collectibles. Like, well, all right, well, great, I made money on this. I don't really need or use this, so let me just sell it and go do something that I'll actually enjoy with it now, right? Um, so traveling, you know, buying a house, paying off other debt, stuff like that. Um, I feel like the re immersion of people into large-scale events is going to be critical to the short-term climb uh, and valuation in these collectibles. Uh, and if there's not that return to normalcy uh, as far as people going to these events and, you know, basically trying to open the supply chain back up too, right? That's been the other big issue with this whole thing is that vendors haven't been able to source cards. So a lot of this, whether it's perceived or real scarcity and the increase in these prices, has been because the normal people that would be able to source uh, cards and sealed product and everything like that to, you know, players and collectors has you know, all but evaporated. Uh, to me, that's one of the only reasons why, you know, you've got people hanging out at Target at 5 a.m. on a Friday morning waiting for a restock because they can buy Pokemon sealed product at full MSRP, full retail, and you can go put it on eBay or TCG Player or, you know, whatever marketplace and still make a profit, which is insane, right? So I think me personally, my hot take is that if we don't see these big tournaments and these big events to uh, reduce the strain of the supply chain and more, you know, have that stuff start moving around again, uh, I definitely think I, between the influx of graded cards and everything else, people that have made their money, that we're going to see a, either, you know, a pullback or it could be a downright collapse in some of the prices on some of these things. Uh, collapse, I think, would more be the stuff that's uh, – it's just collectible due to scarcity or whatever, but there's no other real demand for it. Um, that's the stuff I would not want to be holding the bag on. I'm flesh and blood. I'm looking at you. I know there's some people that are big believers in that, but to me, that's one, like, if you're not playing the game and there's all this perceived value because stuff is so rare, like, it, that, that's just a ticking time bomb. And for me personally, I'm not the kind of person that wants to be left holding the bag, so to speak. So Chris is um, irate right now. Oh, yeah. and I, <laughs> no, and there's some people that are big believers in it, but it's, you know, <laughs> without organized play and people seeing and feeling and, you know, understanding why cards are good or valuable and why they're not, that that's the kind of stuff 
that really worries me. And I, I think, you know, at least that's the stuff that people are going to be cashing out of to go do basically anything else that they haven't been able to do for the past 18 months. I generally agree too. I mean, uh, the big post or the big thing we've been talking about the past couple of weeks is like the discretionary income, right? Like now that you can go to concerts and you can go to restaurants and you can travel, you can do all these things. I love collectibles. I have great inventory, great collection. As soon as I can do other things, I don't want to do collectibles for like at least a month or two. Like, give me, <laughs> give me out of here, man. Let yep. me go outside, you know. And I think even the most diehard people, I think, probably share that sentiment. Like, I we've all been locked up with our stuff for the past year. Take a break, come back, um, and then of course the uh, the tsunami of of graded cards. I. It's going to be interesting. I, I think the stuff, the gems of each hobby, the truly rare or things that have organic demand, the, the really, really high-end stuff will be fine. But mm -hmm. all of that mid-range, um, you know, all the mid-range stuff, is, is it's going to be really odd. And I've gotten this trap before of like counting your eggs before they hatch, where it's like, I think these are going to get this great and it's, it's on the way come on and and you know three months from now who knows what the market even looks like and a lot of the pokemon stuff has actually already decreased in price 30 40 50 percent from the all-time highs in october so we'll see yep chris you had anything you wanted to add to that no 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 i agree i mean i think along the same lines as keel i mean as soon as theaters and comedy clubs open up i'm stepping away from collectibles for a month and and can actually enjoy having a laugh stuff uh but yeah i mean i can have I, I, never mind never mind i'll never take mind. a i'll take a different tact on the uh on the flesh and blood but i totally get where <laughs> you're coming from so I, like i totally understand the logic and i totally understand that if you get involved in, in those kind of tcgs you're you're playing hot potato with who's going to be the last man standing uh i've just found that analytical tools help in being the last not not being the last person holding the potato so <laughs> We'll see, see how that goes. See that go, that goes back to that gap that uh, you uh, quickly analyzed and uh, worked out on for yourself and have created a competitive advantage for yourself. It's a it's amazing what a little bit of hard work and a, a lot of knowledge on stuff that you know doesn't exist that should exist uh, can help with, isn't it? Don't don't let his don't let his head get too big. I but, it uh... might explode. <laughs> yeah, the last thing you guys want to do is make me feel too big for my bridges. You know, I, I am nothing but loud and proud here. I'll start going posting this all over social media. Well, thanks, George, for coming on. Um, if people, I do, I know you do uh, jump in on podcasts from time to time, kind of around the community. If people want to follow your content or check out your store or social medias, Twitters, etc., where can they find that, that uh, information? Sure. Uh, so for right now, you can find me on Twitter at GTutor. Um, I actually tried to change it to at Enlightened Tutor, T-U-D-O-R, just before the podcast started, because uh, that's what I would like for that to be, since that's going to be my brand. Uh, but apparently that is one character too long, and I think Enlightened Tudo uh, might not be very intuitive. So I I've got to figure something out there. Um, other than that, you can find me at Enlightened Tutor. That's my TCG store name. Uh, I'll be updating my eBay store to reflect that as well. I've already purchased the domain for Enlightened Tutor, T-U-D-O-R. Cannot stress that enough, like the terrible people from England. Uh, EnlightenedTutor.com will have a website at some point in the near future. And then uh, anybody that's going to be attending TCGCon uh, down in Tampa, Florida, the last weekend of June, I will be there vending. It will be my first time vending. So 
If you want to come by and say hello to the goofy guy with the glasses, I will probably be wearing a Jacksonville Jaguars hat because I love my Jaguars. And now that hopefully we have a franchise quarterback, we will stop being the laughing stock of the NFL. But I'm not too hopeful. Uh, but please feel free to stop by, clown me for, you know, liking such a terrible team. Uh, come see what I have. I will definitely have, uh, you know, I'll have a lot of magic cards in the case, but I'll also have quite a bit of Pokemon cards. And my hope is to have a pretty wide variety there for. Uh, people to come take a look at, see what I have, and just give me overall feedback on, like I said, what I'm excited for will be my first and potentially my last time uh, as a vendor behind a booth. So just looking forward to the experience. Uh, as Akil said, you can find me here and there on a random podcast when people are kind enough to invite me. And uh, thank you guys both for letting me take, what, an hour and a half out of your uh, Sunday evening to uh, discuss all this with you guys. And I hope the uh, listeners have gleaned something helpful out of it. Yeah. Well, awesome. You've been uh, a great guest. And I'm sure everyone, I learned a lot. Um, just listening. Oh, sorry, I have cards all over the place. Of course, as I'm giving a compliment. Uh, <laughs> no, it's been great. Um, I, I I want to also uh, just say thanks for sharing the, you know, your intimate details of your story and kind of where you've come from and, uh, you know, the challenges that you face. And I think that uh, it's a just a really authentic, genuine story that people will really like. And, and I appreciate it. And I know it's uh, yeah, it's just a very important thing to share that not everyone is uh, strong enough to do. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you guys. Uh, Chris, people want to follow your content. Where can they do that? Uh, you guys can find me sparingly on Twitter at Wolf of Tin Street. And uh, you guys can find me all the time over at the uh, the band community's Discord. You can find us on Patreon. Uh, yeah, or the, the band website, which is mtgband.com. Shameless plug. Cool. And uh, I go by Zakil. I or my name is Zakil. I go by Rainy Day Collectibles Online. <laughs> uh, you can find me on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I haven't been too vocal on social media recently, but hoping to get some videos out soon. Um, otherwise, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Uh, this is the Collect and Spec podcast. Again, if you listen to this on YouTube, you can also listen to the um, audio version on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and vice versa. So thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.